Yes, good morning everyone. Um, as Luke said, my name is Naomi and I'll be reading the Bible for us this morning. Um, so the first passage will be um, Exodus chapter 7, verses 1 to 5. Um, and then we'll be jumping over um, into chapter 8 and chapter 12 and 13. So you can follow along on the screen behind me. So Exodus chapter 7. Then the Lord said to Moses, See, I have made you like God to Pharaoh, and your brother Aaron will be your prophet. You are to say everything I command you, and your brother Aaron is to tell Pharaoh to tell the Israelites, go out of his country. But I will harden Pharaoh's heart, and though I multiply my signs and wonders in Egypt, he will not listen to you. Then I will lay my hand on Egypt, and with mighty acts of judgment, I will bring out my divisions, my people the Israelites. And the Egyptians will know that I am the Lord when I stretch out my hand against Egypt, and, the, and then bring the Israelites out of it. So now, chapter 8, verses 16 to 19. Then the Lord said to Moses, Tell Aaron, stretch out your staff and strike the dust of the ground, and throughout the land of Egypt the dust will become gnats. They did this, and when Aaron stretched out his hand with the staff and struck the dust of the ground, gnats came on people and animals. All the dust throughout the land of Egypt became gnats. When the magicians tried to produce gnats by their secret arts, they could not. Since the gnats were on people and animals everywhere, the magician said to Pharaoh, This is the finger of God. But Pharaoh's heart was hard, and he would not listen, just as the Lord had said. Now, um, chapter 12, verses 1 to 3. The Lord said to Moses and Aaron in Egypt, This month is to be for the first month, the first month of your year. Tell the whole community of Israel that on the tenth day of this month, each man is to take a lamb for his family, one for each household. Um, verse 12 to 14. On that same night, I will pass through Egypt and strike down every firstborn of both people and animals, and I will bring judgment on all of, God, all of the gods of Egypt. I am the Lord. The blood will be a sign for you on the houses where you are, and when I see the blood, I will pass over you. No destructive plague will touch you when I strike Egypt. This is a day you are to commemorate. For the generations to come, you shall celebrate it as a festival to the Lord, a lasting ordinance. Um, Verse 26 to 32. And when your children ask you, what does this ceremony mean to you? Then tell them, it is the Passover sacrifice to the Lord, who passed over the houses of the Israelites in Egypt and spared our homes when he struck down the Egyptians. Then the people bowed down and worshipped. The Israelites did just what the Lord commanded Moses and Aaron. At midnight the Lord struck down all the firstborn in Egypt, from the firstborn of Pharaoh, who sat on the throne, to the firstborn of the prisoner, who was in the dungeon, and the firstborn of all the livestock as well. Pharaoh and all his officials and all the Egyptians got up during the night, and there was loud wailing in Egypt, for there was not a house without someone dead. During the night Pharaoh summoned Moses and Aaron and said, Up! Leave my people, you and the Israelites. Go, worship the Lord as you have requested. Take your flocks and herds, as you have said, and go. And also bless me. And the last one is um, chapter 13, verses 14 to 16. In days to come, when your son asks you, what does this mean? Say to him, with a mighty hand of the Lord brought up the mighty hand of the Lord brought us out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. When Pharaoh stubbornly refused to let us go, 
the Lord killed the firstborn of both people and animals in Egypt. This is why I sacrifice to the Lord the first male offspring of every womb and redeem each of my firstborn sons. And it will be like a sign on your hand and a symbol on your forehead that the Lord brought us out of Egypt with his mighty hand. If you want to grab the outline for today's talk, please jump on the hub, get that and follow along uh, as we work through Exodus and the plagues and the Passover. I'm going to just pray as we begin. So let's do that. Father God, as we gather to open your word, we thank you that you are a speaking God, that you are not silent. You are speaking through what happened in the Exodus event. You are speaking through your word to us today. You speak to us through Jesus and your spirit. God, we are so thankful that you are, you sent the Passover lamb to God's people here, but also the greater one, your son, Jesus, to us today, who forgives us. May you point us more and more to you, center our lives around you, as we open your word now and investigate what you have to say to us today. In your name we pray. Amen. As he was running, his feet stumbled over the holes the hailstones had only left days earlier. What was once a lush field filled with barley was now a barren wasteland with divots pouring with water from the torrential downpour that had devastated the land. Dead livestock littered the ground looking ghastly as they lay disfigured, unintelligible as to what they were before the destruction from the storms. It crushed them instantly. They had no chance of escape, no hope. He did see a few Egyptians, though. One of them was desperately trying to find food for the remaining few cattle he had. He noticed one Egyptian sitting on the ground, the dark clouds overhead mimicking the grief that was on his face. Still another itching from the boils and the sores that infected his his body. He was aimlessly wandering around, trying to make sense of it all. All of this was so Egypt, these people, would know that God is the Most High Lord. Something Moses kept repeating, in fact, after each plague, but Pharaoh was stubborn. As he kept going, getting faster and faster, the wind licked, it, licked his face. And he remembered what it was like only days earlier. The horror of the beatings. Having to get straw yet still make the daily quota of bricks. The hard work that had killed so many of his friends. Even one of his own sons at such a young age had died in the brick fields of Egypt. He looked down at his hands, blistered and cracked and spending 12 hours a day in the clay fields, they'd never recover. But all of this had stopped. The dreaded life of being a slave was almost gone. Moses, this strange man, born an Israelite, raised an Egyptian, had returned. He excited him and all the Israelites that he'd met with Yahweh, their God, the God of their fathers, and had heard their pleas for mercy and cry for help. It had filled filled him with joy initially. Trouble was, it just didn't seem like anything was happening at the moment. After all, things had gotten bad from bad to worse, not better. Where was this promised redemption that God had so excitedly spoken about at a burning bush? 
But he couldn't be too critical at the moment. He was scratching his head, wondering what on earth was God up to? He turned a few paces to the left. Was it the seventh or eighth plague now? He wasn't sure. He couldn't remember by now. But it seemed with each passing plague, it was as if creation itself was being undone as Yahweh and Pharaoh were battling over his own people. He remembered at the start how Pharaoh and his magicians could mimic Yahweh's plagues. They turned water into blood. They made frogs appear on the land as well. But it hadn't taken them long to realize this wasn't some spell or trick. He heard one of the sorcerers walk out of Pharaoh's courts in fear, muttering under his breath as the flies swarmed over Egypt and his face. This is the very finger of God. Why hasn't Pharaoh let them go yet? He smiled. Although it was real power that the Egyptians had, it was counterfeit power. It wouldn't last. The true God isn't fooled by appearances. As he passed into the Israelite land of Goshen, he could hear the bleating of sheep, smell the fires burning as the pots cooked the daily meal, and the chatter of families, a very, very different place compared to Egypt. They were all in a hurry, though, eagerly recalling Moses' last words to them as they were preparing for one last plague to befall Egypt and them as well. And as he thought about this, he realized this was a very different sort of plague. This time... Death would come down, hug the land, yet, or even where his family lived, I should say, what would separate them from dying? That was what Moses had spoken about. He kept going, weaving through the streets, still running to make it there on time. He rounded the last corner, jumped over a bag of grain, ducked past a basket of herbs. He nearly locked them over. He glanced back quickly and saw the hyssop branch was safe. That would be useful in a few hours. As he approached his home, he stopped just outside the gate to catch his breath. It was time. He stretched his back, muttered to himself, the battle between Yahweh and Pharaoh has reached its deadly climax. You see, Pharaoh's evil had risen to the point of no return. His heart so hard that Yahweh was now bending and twisting it for his own divine purpose. That he was sure of. Pharaoh was indeed a wicked, evil person. He was not morally neutral, he thought, as God squeezed and hardened this heart. Pharaoh was never one of the good guys. God knew that Pharaoh would resist. He became intoxicated with his own power and evil, even as God hardened his heart. He shuddered at the thought of how evil Pharaoh was. What was clear was that that God had given Pharaoh a chance to repent after each plague. He remembers hearing that, in fact. Yet even though he didn't, and he asked God to relent, God did. Pharaoh just reneged every time he said we could leave, and we couldn't. He reached out for a jug of water and took a drink, wiping the sweat from his face. Moses had used the word exodus to describe this coming event. It literally means going out, and that's what he longed for. He gathered his thoughts. He walked through the gate and he looked for the lamb. He knew the one. Fourteen days ago, he'd picked it out. This was the one that was perfect. No spot, no blemish. After all, this little lamb would play a very important role. It was for Yahweh and only the best would do. As he searched his flock, he realized that this, this exodus event wasn't some sort of 
paradigm for liberation from social evil. No, no, no. It meant freedom unto God, not freedom for himself. And that's what he longed for. The freedom to serve a good God, to be in his presence in his land. And that moment was almost here. As he ran his hands over the backs of the lambs, suddenly he found the one. This was it. This is what Yahweh had said to do. He picked it up, the small white lamb, and he held it close. Suddenly a wave of emotions overtook him as he was holding this creature and he fell to the ground and and started to weep. Tears scalded his cheeks as he quietly sobbed. In all the other plagues, he remembers stands there watching as Egypt was thrown into chaos, but this time it was different. In the other plagues, they were spectators. For the tenth and final time, they're participants. What was the word Moses used to describe it? He, oh yes, Passover. He heard that word before, Pesha. Normally it just referred to hovering or skipping over something, but Yahweh took this word and he reinterpreted it. He filled it with new meaning. He threw it back at them and said death would pass over them because the lamb would die instead of them. It was a life-changing, culture-defining moment. From now on, he thought, every glance at the calendar will remind him and his people of the beginning of their new life through the death of another. Their life begins when the lamb dies, you see. And as the sun started to set, he wiped his eyes. Very soon the blood from this lamb would paint the house red to show that it had died in their place and they can go free. As he was thinking through all this, he realized this was very costly. Death is the price for freedom and and God provides a way of escape so the plague of death and his judgment passes over them. Yes, he's a sinner, even though he's a slave and has suffered terribly, he still sins. You see, many, many of his friends and relatives, he thought, so we all deserve judgment for worshipping the false gods of Egypt. Egypt was horrible, but it provided food, it provided gods to revolve your life around. And he thought sometimes living oppressed in Egypt sounded better than freedom because the future was unknown with God. He knew what Egypt was like. He thought about it more and realized that atonement, it's about reconciliation. Redemption is about purchasing and buying back, releasing. They function differently, both are necessary, but tonight, he thought, tonight is all about deliverance, redemption. He walked carefully then, not wanting to drop this lamb. He continued on to his small house, just enough for him and his family. The evening celebrations were on his mind. It's a bit like a dinner party, wasn't it? With a lamb being the main dish, cooked, eaten, served with bitter herbs. They had to make sure their clothes were on and the bread was being made while they ate. It was strange. Who eats so quickly and for what purpose? The feasts, the blood, the unleavened bread, wearing his clothes ready for a journey... All of this was to be experienced and recalled for the rest of his life and the lives of his children. His children, yes. Moses made special mention of them, didn't he? What did he say? As he looked over at his home, he saw his remaining son who was preparing the fire that they would soon cook the lamb on. He thought about it and realized Moses had told them that his children would ask questions, right? What are you doing? What do you mean by all of this? And he was to tell them, It's the sacrifice of the Lord's Passover. For he passed over the houses of the people in Israel 
when we were in Egypt and struck the Egyptians, but spared us. He couldn't wait for his son and daughter to tell their children that story. And in a very real sense, he thought to live in a constant state of needing the Lamb of God's redemption over their lives as well. Just as the Lord watched over them on this night, they are to continue to watch this Passover event every year. And it was so good, he thought, so joyful. As a slave, he could never celebrate. Why would you celebrate as a slave? Your birth? No. Being born a slave is no life to celebrate. He never had the freedom to regulate his life around anything that mattered. Everything was decided for him. When you wake up, when you sleep, when you eat, when you drink, when you lie down, a day off? What's that for a slave? But what Yahweh's doing isn't giving them more slavery. In Egypt, he said, I'm forced to be a slave. But what this Passover does is cement a feast, a celebration in my life into the rhythm of God's community, not just for a night, but for a lifetime. And that's so good. I want that, he said. Then he arrived at the place reserved for the lamb's death. He called to his family and they gathered around and they stood quietly. The wind was picking up, the smoke from the fires blowing around them. It was very eerie. He noticed all his neighbors were gathered too. At twilight, just as Yahweh had commanded, doing the same thing. Not a sound could be heard from anyone. The basin was ready for the lamb's blood. The Hishop Brantz was sitting nearby. His wife had paused from making the bread. And thanks to his son, the fire was ready. He sat the lamb gently down. He was bleating calmly as he put his hand over the lamb's head. And he whispered, thank you. He bent down, picked up the knife and felt its rough handle as he recalled how years earlier Pharaoh had tried to kill all the firstborns of Israel. He raised the knife higher. He knew that this last plague more than anything else struck at the heart of Pharaoh's idol worship. Pharaoh saw himself as a god, ruler of all other gods in Egypt. He saw his firstborn son as the next incarnate god to succeed him. But in this moment, Yahweh was showing him no gods we make. Not even our succession plans or sons can save us. He stopped with a knife by his head and he paused. He remembered how much he'd thought, seen, smelt blood the last few days. The largest body of water he'd ever seen turned to blood in the first plague. And even though death was always there in an agrarian society, Yahweh saw life as different. It was sacred. It wasn't something to be regarded as cheap. This was it. He looked at his family one last time. And just like that, he gently brought the knife down to the lamb and the bleeding stopped. The muscles and tendons in its neck burst. It lay limp and lifeless with its blood slowly dripping out into the basin. And from street to street, from house to house, he could hear the same sound. The fires were burning and the wind was picking up. When the basin was full, he ushered his family indoors and they cooked, they ate the meat. They had the bread ready to go and he dipped the hyssop branch in the basin to cover the door with the lamb's blood to show they're under God's protection. With that image of a dying lamb and the blood dripping from his door, the taste of redemption in his mouth, he shut the door one last time as a slave. With his family safe, they stayed indoors and waited guarded and rescued by the blood of the Lamb. 
They didn't have to sit too long in silence, though. At midnight, God struck the firstborn in the land of Egypt. At first, he thought it sounded like birds squawking in the distance, as you might hear in the morning. But soon the wailing was so loud and so deep and so clear, it shook him to the very core of who he was. He looked out the window and could see panic in the Egyptians, torches being lit everywhere. People awoke. And God judged Egypt. It ripped them apart, death, pain, tears, grief. And then he saw Moses and Aaron running to Pharaoh's palace. He heard a vicious scream, blood curling above all the others. It was Pharaoh. Get out of here. Be done with you. Go and worship your God on your terms, he said. It was time. His whole life had been waiting for this moment. And they left. Emotions dancing with fear and joy and hope with each step as if a weight was being lifted from his shoulders. He could feel again, breathe again, be human once more. Dignity was restored because Yahweh's actions and their trust in him. No longer was he a dirty, vile, brick-casting slave. No, once he had no identity, but now he's the people of God, defined by God's grace and mercy. He met others coming out of their homes too, And they all started traveling from Ramses to Succoth and then onwards to the Red Sea. About two weeks of travel time, he thought, for all 600,000 of them leaving. He looked back occasionally at the place filled with death, tears and pain. And turning ahead, he could see Moses and Aaron leading them. They were going to meet Yahweh. So what does it look like? to have God show up in our lives in a very, 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 very dramatic fashion like we just read in that account. We can retell the story like I have just done. That's to try and think and feel like an Israelite. How would you feel that first pass overnight when you left Egypt? But you see, not only that, when we look at the whole thing, all the plagues, the Passover, as one block, what we see is the answer to the question of what is going to define the people of God after Egypt? What's going to shape them as the people of God post-living as a slave? In fact, so mammoth and so important is this being defined by God that in Exodus 12, God says to Moses, this is the month, is the first month of your whole year. It's New Year's Day. God just drops a whole new calendar, a whole new culture into their world that revolves around feasts and celebrations and rituals and reminders that seek to do one thing, to realign them during the year to the Passover and their rescue as the people of God. You see, coming out of slavery from Egypt means their past life, their thinking, their trust, their purpose, their work, their laws, their family, all of that needs to be understood now and reinterpreted in light of who their God is. Egypt regulated everything for them. Pharaoh was the one they trusted in. We saw last week, they said, we're your servants, we're your servants, help us. So what God does is to now give his people, right at the beginning of their new life, a threefold combination of redemption and ritual and remembering that's going to define them. Redemption Ritual and remembering. What I want us to see today is that these three things aren't too far removed from 21st century Adelaide as well. We, for example, use rituals to mark early stages of our lives, like birthdays and graduations and 
and holidays, weddings and special dinners. We have memorials in our society to recall the past in a reality so we don't forget. I'm sure you can think of some of them. One of them's coming up, actually. Um, Vietnam. Remembrance Day, I think. Everyday objects we have are attached to personal losses or joys, a wedding ring or a teddy bear or something. Even if you're like me and not terribly sentimental at all in any way, you still every now and then have a memory or a thought when you hear something or smell something or see something of your past, recalling it, what's happened. And so as we look at each of these now, ritual and redemption and remembering, I think it would be good for us to think about ourselves, the rituals, the memories, the habits, the traditions that define you as an individual, that define us as a church, and to then ask ourselves, how does God want me to define myself and my life? Not only that, what should define me and myself? define us as a community of God's people? Is something other than my redemption in Jesus defining me? Am I building habits that bring me closer to God or hinder me from being his people? So it's good to think about those today. So the first thing, the first defining moment in God's the life of God's people we see here is redemption. A millennium and a half later, the Apostle Paul would remind the believers in Corinth that Jesus Christ was our Passover lamb, and Amanda shared that with us in our kids' talk, that he was sacrificed for us. It happened on the same night that Israel remembers their exodus from Egypt, in fact. As God again passes over those who are secured secured by the blood, this time it's the blood of the Son of God, not a lamb. And just as the firstborn of Egypt died, God's firstborn son, Jesus, now dies. As the Lamb died to redeem them, so too Jesus dies to redeem us from our sin and God's anger at our sin. But unlike the Lamb, it happens once. Never to be repeated. Redemption from Satan's sin and death. That redemption means we are free from being enslaved to other things in our life too, like they were from Egypt. Do you know, as a Christian, you can say... I refuse to let my job or my relationship define me. Rather, I can safely let my redemption in Jesus define me, give me meaning and purpose. I can reorientate myself to that every day. As I remember my sin, the costly freedom. If Jesus defines you and me, we don't have to let our past define us, like God's people under Pharaoh. Or my ability to work or perform or be a valued member of society because I rely on the... the, victorious strength of Jesus. And I can truly love and serve others, not for my identity, not to use them for my own ambition in life, but simply because Jesus served and loved me while I was still his enemy. I can now do that. For me, Jesus began defining my life that way when I was um, 14 years old. It shapes who I marry, how I live, how I worked, how I studied. By God's grace, every single day since then, he has continually been defining and shaping me by that same gospel. And I wonder, is Jesus and his good news still defining you today in the season of life that you find yourself in? And the second thing is ritual. One of the stand-up features of this chapter, in 12 and 13 particularly, is that so much is spent on how they're to follow and obey the Passover, the Feast of Unleavened Bread, from 12, 2 to 28, 
43 to 49, and, and pretty much the first 16 verses of chapter 13, there's this extended account of all these rituals and ceremonies they have to participate in. But don't get upset by the word ritual when I use that. Rituals are beautiful. You have them in your life all the time. You just don't realize it. We call them habits. We call them traditions. And what's more, we actually crave them as people. And we felt this in the restrictions, haven't we, at this time? Not being able to go to the pub to catch up with our friends each fortnight, as you might do after work on a Friday. Not being able to uh, go to the footy game. Some of you, if you're a season holder, you can now, so good on you. But you just can't go there anymore. The catch-up with the girls over coffee after your Saturday morning walk, or that, that family event or tradition that we love, going to the Christmas pageant even, the music festival, the royal show, for example. Our life is built around these rituals. We have them ingrained into our society and our culture. Even the ritual of going to the office every day has been thrown up in the air as I speak to you. Some of you are now working two days at home, or three, or, or it's, all, it's all flaky, who knows? But you see, those things, they shape us, they define us, they give our life meaning and purpose. They help regulate who we are. And consider, just for a slave now, Pharaoh defined them. They haven't a clue what life on the other side of Pharaoh defining them looks like. And you know, the same is true if you are a Christian, if you're a follower of Jesus today. The Christian view on life, on how to live in a pandemic on why we gather, on sexuality, on money. It's strange. It's weird. It's its a very odd thing to talk about those things unless you follow that same Jesus too. And so to keep God's character, to keep the culture of who God is defining us, Jesus institutes rituals for us. Throughout history, especially in the Reformation, These have become the defining marks of a church, these rituals. The Lord's Supper, baptism, preaching of the gospel each week faithfully. They have defined the church and will continue to define the church. They are the rituals that define us as the people of God for us to remember with all our senses, our costly redemption, to live in that reality, to let that define us day in and day out, week after week, year after year, back to Jesus, our once for all Passover lamb. Those rituals are important for our church and for you. And finally, all of this helps us remember, and we've, we've covered this briefly, but in Exodus 12, 26 and 27 and 13, 14, 13, 14 to 16, sorry, specifically, Moses speaks to parents. And their children ask, what's going on, Dad? Why are you killing the lamb today? These rituals are not undefining the people that experience their exodus, but the entire nation forever, so that every generation would not drift away from their need of the blood of the Lamb, you see. You see, we drift too. When we reduce the importance of the gospel in our life, when we, when we think sin is no longer a big deal, we sin when we allow ritual to become just a thing you do and don't understand why or appreciate the significance. We, we sin by allowing and we drift and we other things to define us as a church. Or we think we have to have a certain practice in our church or in my life to be who I am in Christ. We sin by forgetting what defines me is not my agenda, but God's agenda. And his grace through the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And so as God's people found out here, their new life from slavery is shaped by their redemption through the Lamb. Through ritual as they participate in and recall their exodus event. Also that they would remember 
what God has done for them. This is a question to ask us, myself and you this morning, is what is going to define you and me as a church? Are we behaving? Are we living as people that live out who we are in Christ, our identity? Do we read and pray, trust his grace? Do we care for others? In the same way, Jesus does indeed care for us. Because I think now more than ever, as we navigate the change to our church, our culture, being a good citizen, glorifying God, what that looks like, there are so many noises, so many things out there that could define us and shape us and and suck all our energy and time out of us. Or, Or we could say, what's happening? By the grace of God, I will never, ever allow anything else in this life to make a dent in the redemption I have in Jesus so that he will define me. Not once a year, not once a week, but every single day. So I want Jesus to define me. What about you? May it be Jesus. May it always be Jesus in our lives today. Let's pray. Our great God, we thank you that you you have sent your Son to be the one to save and redeem us, to give us a new, a new life, a new culture, a new way of living and navigating and kicking around in this life under you, with you, and for your glory. And, and God, it's so tricky at times to do that when there's so many noises around us and so many, so many things competing for our attention and life is tiring and exhausting. But God, may we today take heart and strengthen our weak knees and not drift. Father, may all of us here not let anything else but the redemption that is in Jesus define us. May we repent from other things in our lives that have snuck in and are sucking out the life and energy from us. Father God, in you we find rest for our souls We find meaning and purpose in this life through all of those things, not just getting through every day, but living in a way that glorifies you and points others to you. May you define and shape us as a church and as an individual. In your wonderful name we pray and ask this, Jesus. Amen.